Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Shabbat, Kuf Kaf Tet, 129. Yerdena, we're getting towards the end. We should announce our seum soon. Yes, we will. So everyone make plans. We'll have some more details, but um, it looks like on August 9th, which is actually the day before Masachat Shabbat ends, uh, but we will be having our Talking Talmud seum. Um, and that means learners, we are relying on you to provide the tower for the CM and we'll have some more details about that, uh, hopefully over this week. I'm getting excited. Okay. Um, on our DAF. So as you'll recall, yesterday's DAF was already, um, deep in the issues of health really on Pikuach Nefesh in the context of Shabbat, specifically when it comes to childbirth. Now, it comes a whole big discussion. The, the discussion of childbirth, I would say, is ongoing throughout Kuf Kaftet. It's not the only health discussion that is ongoing throughout Kuf Kaftet. Your Danny will get to that in a moment. Before that, I just want to talk about the fact that, you know, we have this whole discussion of all these different things that can you desecrate Shabbat for the woman who has whatever need during her time before and right after giving birth. So there's this, the, and of course, there's dispute Throughout the whole discussion, we see that there is there are those who paskin stringently and those who paskin leniently. Marzutra teaches leniently, Rav Ashi teaches stringently. And so then the Gemara says, And this isn't even about a specific case. Or I mean, in the Gemara, it's about a specific case with regard to childbirth. But the principle we're going to say is going to apply throughout, really all of these kinds of questions, all of these kinds of health on Shabbos, what can you do to, to work to save somebody's life when it's not so clear that you're really saving their life, right? We're talking about helping somebody feel better or making sure that they are not in danger of their life, that kind of situation. We're not really talking about a, a true, you know, on the moment saving someone's life kind of situation. Right. I, I would say it as that, or that we don't by not doing something or, holding ourselves back from an action that we therefore cause an actual sakhanas nefashos type of situation. Right, right. The There's no emergent danger, It's but there's still a concern of health, right? We're still concerned about, you know, how how far do we go when we're talking about pikuach nefesh? I think that's part of what we're talking about here in terms of the parameters in the context of Shabbat. So again, we have those who will say be stringent, those who will say be lenient, with regard to Shabbat, you know, be more careful about Shabbat than you are about Pikuach Nefesh or vice versa. Who are we going to paskin like? At the end of the day, we paskin like Marzutra, whose position is to take a lenient approach, meaning lenient with regard to Shabbat, and that means machmir, stringent, with regard to Pikuach Nefesh, and the and the principle, and this is what's important here, is safik nefashot lahakel. The moment that we have a doubt, a question, whether there is uh, someone's health or life at stake, even if it's clear that it's not really at stake at that moment, but but we're in this gray zone of what might happen next. We say, all right, we are going to be makil, we are going to be lenient with regard to everything except for the pikuach nefesh aspect of things. So that's the important principle here. So fake nefeshot lahakel. Yeah, we, we couldn't read this stuff and not mention this. It's really, I would say, one of the most important principles in halacha, the suffix nefashot lahakel. Um, I want to move on. And the other piece that's on this stuff, uh, which gave me an opportunity to, those of you who have been 
listening with us know about my newly discovered book of the translation of Julius Bruce's uh, Biblical and Talmudic Medicine, that there's a whole discussion about bloodletting on this stuff. Um, and, you know, true to form, when I looked it up in this book, there's a huge chapter on bloodletting and it comes up in many sections of the book. Uh, but we learn a lot about bloodletting on this stuff. I'm not going to read a particular Gemara uh, or a piece of Gemara, but I want to just mention a few themes that we see here. Um, one is, is that we see that bloodletting seems to have done not as a specific therapy, but sort of as a maintenance of health. Um, and so I think that's one thing that we see on this staff. Um, and certainly Shmuel was somebody who did bloodletting quite frequently, it seems like. The second is, is that that gets into my second piece, which is the frequency. Um, so there's an interesting discussion here about how frequently should bloodletting actually happen, right? And it makes a point of saying that as you get older, you know, it shouldn't be more than a 30-day, you want a 30-day interval, um, and that as you get older, um, and what that question is, what does older actually mean, you know, is it, uh, and some of the Farshim say, is it age 40, is it 50, you want to extend the intervals. Um, and then the last piece that I wanted to mention is, which there is a uh, large chunk of discussion about, is sort of the nourishment after bloodletting. There seems to be a whole piece that if you're taking something out of the body, right, you're letting off some of that blood, you need to put something into the body. Um, and we see what a lot of the Amorayim did, what things did they drink, right? Did they drink wine? Did they drink meat? Some, somebody eats spleen. Um, and the idea is, is that also that, you know, Rav and Shmuel talk about that you should wait a little bit, right? You don't like uh, necessarily, um, you don't eat right away. Uh, you wanna take a little bit of time until you eat. Um, so we see this whole interesting thing about the nourishment piece of bloodletting. Um, and the other thing we also see is, uh, I guess maybe this, you know, would be a fourth item is sort of how you had to take care of yourself. Right. So Shmuel describes that he would only do it in a house, uh, you know, that was seven and a half bricks deep because he didn't want to get a particular chill. So it's interesting to see that I think one of, you know, one of the pieces about bloodletting is, is that it obviously was used for sort of health maintenance, but it also was seen that it came at risk and that there were particular safer ways in which to do bloodletting. Um, so I think this staff gives us a lot of detail about bloodletting itself um, and also just gives us a certain frame of mind of what medicine or preventative health looked like. That's really what I would call it in the times of the Talmud. And, you know, bloodletting was clearly an essential part of it. And this staff is spending a lot of time telling us how to do it safely and effectively. So let me ask you in your doctor's hat, um, because my understanding has always been, and I've encountered bloodletting as a common pseudo-medical practice throughout the ages, through novels, through history books, through, right, I, you know, long after the time of the Gemara, but also long before the current day. So my question is, um, was there something to it? Because I was always under the impression that there was not. You, no, look, I mean, I, this is something again, that like, if I wasn't doing this in the context of Dafyomi, I probably would spend a little bit more time on it. Um, I think, you know, this is always a question when we encounter something that no longer is done, um, you know, as a Daf, the only thing that I can think of is, is that we certainly do have some blood diseases, you know, particularly, you know, there's something, a, a medical procedure that's called plasma phoresis. Um, which is the idea of sort of taking uh, some of your blood out. Um, you know, that can be a treatment sometimes um, of, uh, you know, so it's basically it's the removal of like blood plasma 
Um, so that is something that we sometimes do. Um, and there are different ways to do it. So I would say there are modern ways. Maybe that's like a modern type of bloodletting. That's why I would sort of describe Okay, that. fair enough. I think it's very clear that, you know, even to the extent that Chazal's um, medical knowledge was limited, given the science of their day, they clearly were focused on medicine. They clearly were paying attention to issues of health. Right. I think that's actually, so I think that's actually the more important point. And, you know, first of all, I just want to say something that plasmapheresis is not so common in the United States. It's more common in other parts of the world. Um, but um, I think that's actually the point is that I think a fully rounded Talmud Chacham, and we've seen this time and time again, that also part of imparting sort of Torah wisdom was not just sticking to Torah Shavachtav, Torah Shavachtav, we're really speaking about all areas of life. And we see this very clearly on this page, right? We are looking to the Amorayim to give us information about what is the healthiest way and to describe the importance of blooding. And that the Gemara seems very comfortable with is under the guise of the Amor or the Talmud Chacham. And that they were, these were things that they were well-versed in and really thought about. Right, clearly. And this tradition carried on, right? Ramba, Maimonides was a doctor. Nachmanides, yeah. Ramban was a doctor, right? The, the number of rabbinic figures who, in addition to being rabbinic figures, were also medical figures, you know, is, is well known. Right. And there's probably even more information about bloodletting in medieval literature even than it appears in the Talmud. But that's a whole separate discussion. Right. Okay, so I want to, I want to, well, bloodletting kind of goes throughout this stuff. So I'm going to jump back a little bit or, or forward as the case may be. Um, there's, again, th- also throughout this stuff, there's this discuss- discussion of the woman and child birth. And you're, Dana, I know you're going to pick up on that in a moment. But so in this discussion of, you know, when she's in the throes of childbirth and the question is, you know, at, is she at three days after she gives birth, seven days after she gives, she gives birth, 30 days after she gives birth, within all of these constraints, she's able to still make these requests. I mean, she's still considered this um, woman whose health is at stake. And, and if what she needs requires the desecration of Shabbat, then you go right ahead and you desecrate Shabbat. Except for here we have a caveat, and which we did not see before. And I think that it is part of the difference between, you know, within these... Um, gradations of experience post-birth as compared to during birth or right before. So this is Rav Ula, the son of Rav Eli. He says, basically, to the extent that it is possible, when you have somebody who is sick, but that sick, the person's life is not in danger, right? Again, you're not rushing to take care of it that second. So then the any of those needs that are you're, you're taking care of for the sick person use a non-jew right this is it's very clearly what we today would say we would say go find yourself a non-jew a shabbos guy right whatever for the sake of doing exactly these the same things which presumably in the absence of a non-jew you would the jew would make sure to take care of them but let's let's have a um a bit of an easement of how much um, desecration of Shabbat is going to be done when there is an alternative. The moment you're in a situation where there's ain bosakana, it is not a dangerous situation. That's when Rav Hamnuna says, under those circumstances, you say to the to the non-Jew, you know, to do the act that will help the person in need. 
and the non-Jew performs that act. Now, of course, that's also interesting, the, the implications that you say directly. None of this hinting around that we get that we get into when we're talking about, you know, um, other forms of speaking to a non-Jew for the sake of having some kind of need of malacha done on Shabbat, that's really the classical case of a Shabbos goy. But in this case, there's a medical need. The point is that if you don't have an immediate, an immediate danger for the person who's sick, then you have the leeway to get somebody else, meaning some non-Jew who's not obligated in Shabbat, to do the Shabbat, Shabbos malacha for you. And this Gemara is saying that is the way to go. It's an interesting comment on, you know, we've been talking about the interactions between Jews and non-Jews, and it's a whole new wrinkle that we haven't really discussed. Right. Yeah, I think the wrinkle that it brings into this is, is that, you know, if we have the principle of suffix nefashos lahakel, to then create a pure, you know, a, a category, although it's very clear what the parameters of that category is, where you're sort of saying, like, better not to have the Jews do the malacha, but we'll allow that you ask a non-Jew to do a malacha that's clearly for the Jew, you know, I think it makes it muddied for some people and then makes it difficult for them to even rely on the suffix, you know, nefasha lahakel, like, so then why wouldn't you just always ask, but I think you know, these the non-Jew to I do I may it? be wrong here, but I think that these are two halacha categories. Suffix nefasha lahakel means there is, in fact, a, a greater risk, it sounds to my ears, as compared to diversha in bosakana, Right. I totally agree with you, but I, I can I think that's what's important here. These are two totally different categories. So I think the difference would be, you know, Davar Shein, Shein Bo Sakana would be, you know, a woman is 31 days postpartum and she says the room is cold for me, right? So it's not a Sakana, right? But we want her to be, we respect and want her to be comfortable, right? We respect that she's still sort of in a healing process. I think that's even, like I think what the key even, difference is. Even earlier, meaning let's say it says here in the Gemara, between seven and 30 days, right? We're not, it's not, we're not talking about she just gave birth that second, but it's all right, exactly. well into her healing process, but we don't say, okay, now go run a marathon. Right. But exact. but I think that's exactly the point. They're really two different categories, right? Suffolk Nefesha Lahakal and Ainbo Sakana. I guess my just observation is, is I can see where sort of people who are not familiar with these particular Gemaras could get, could confuse the two. And that's why I think it is really important to sort of recognize and teach it as two totally separate halakhic principles. Okay, I'm with you on that. Okay, um, so I'm just going to end our daf with one interesting thing that's on the bottom of the daf. Um, and this is getting into a discussion of what are things you're allowed to do for a baby when a baby's born. And the Gemara quotes a very interesting uh, piece from Yechezkel, um, where it says the following. Okay, so Rav Nachman quotes, you know, Rabbi Baravua and, and, and Rav. And he quotes this very interesting chapter, which is in Yechezkel, uh, Perak uh, Tet Zion. Now, it's an interesting Perak because the Perak is completely and totally metaphorical. It basically describes a woman being born and it describes her from childbirth um, and that essentially she's left with nobody to take care of her as soon as she's born or to care for her at all. And she's left naked and Hashem comes with Hashem's clothing. So the anthropomorphism of the chapter is very interesting. Um, so I really would encourage everybody, and I know Anne and I say this constantly, open up the chapter in Yechezkel and look at the full chapter. 
Um, but it's a completely metaphorical chapter. And yet, what do they do here? They take this chapter and they say the description that's given of what was not done for this baby when it was born. It's in Pasuk Dalit. Right, so it says that for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel uh, was not cut, you were not washed in water for cleansing, and you were not salted, and you were not swaddled. And therefore, then they go, and the Gemara goes on to explain, right, from here we learn that on your birth, on the day you were born, so we learn from here that if one delivers a newborn on Shabbat, you know, you can deliver a newborn on Shabbat. Right? Your navel was not cut. From here we learn you can cut the umbilical cord on Shabbat. Right? Right? It says that you were not washed in water for cleaning. From here we learn you can wash the newborn on Shabbat. This I don't totally understand, but I guess you salted the baby. Um, I'm, not, I'm interested what that is. Maybe that was a way of keeping them warm. Um, right? And that you were not swaddled from her. They can swaddle the newborn on Shabbat. So it's interesting to see that they take a parak, which is so clearly metaphorical, and learn real halachalamasa, right? Like they say, everything that wasn't done to this metaphorical newborn in Yechezkel are things that you practically can do. Um, and I think it's just a great read of using, uh, you know, I guess you would call this an asmachta, right? Like it's they know what the halacha should be, but it's really trying to find a pasuk to pin it on. And not only is it using a pasuk, it's using a pasuk that is clearly metaphorical. So I found that to be very, very interesting uh, on this page. Yeah, I agree with you. And I was just going to make that, that same comment that you made at the end, right? Because in terms of learning the halacha here, I feel like the halacha is known, right? Like, you know, can a, can a woman deliver a baby on Shabbat? The answer is, well, yeah, you know, because she's going to, so she's got to, so she's allowed, right? And then all these other factors of what you're allowed to do. I, I think that the asmach, the factor of it, the the tying it back to the Navi to say, see, this is this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way the halacha is supposed to be, is um, carries within it a reassurance, right? That it's, that this is the Torah way to go. And I think that there's something, um, you know, we've said before, you know, can't, can't we just say, well, obviously, and I think that the answer is sometimes you can't just say just obviously, but we need to have that support from the biblical text. And then the thing that would have otherwise been just obviously gets that greater, you know, this lovely Yiddish word. Well, with I would say it differently, right? You could say also that someone will come and say, well, like, maybe you don't need to cut the umbilical cord. Maybe you don't need to swaddle them. And so thereby using this pasuk, even though it's metaphorical, saying like, no, these are the standard things that are done to a, a newborn as soon as they're born. And that point, um, and the so umbilical cord example. not even a question. The umbilical, right. the Gemara says straight up, right? The, if you leave the umbilical cord, you're putting the baby at risk. That's a big deal. Right. The, so a, that they do that, and and B, that there's, right, there's no cutting corners. I think that there's, that's why I think that it's important that they connected it to the Torah, right? It, exactly. It, right. it doesn't allow, right, I don't think it's, I think it's actually Lahaka. Like, it doesn't allow anybody to cut corners. That's, that's the reason to do it. Not to take a more, you know, in this case in particular, 
not to take a stricter approach, but to really be like, these are you, there's so much that you have to do for a baby when it's born. I think we're saying the same thing, right? Meaning, are you being yes, stricter? Are. are you being strict with regard to pikuach nefesh, right? Or it's the same, or are you being mekil with regard to Shabbos? Correct, right. And I think we're seeing two sides of that on this stat, which is being strict with pikuach nefesh, which, which in the end forces us to be, um, and I don't know that I would use the word force, I'm going to retract, which requires us, right? Which requires us to be mekel for Shabbat. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Uh, come join our discussion on our Facebook page. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, get your thoughts in order for our assume that's upcoming in about a month, uh, less than a month. And until tomorrow, go and learn.